The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day, Stephen. I know you've welcomed me each of the successive weeks that you know, when we were doing orientation. I was in Bakersfield for Kern County two shows ago. I was in San Luis Obispo one show ago, and I'm back in Monterey today. You are a trailblazer indeed. I do need to tell, give you one brief warning, and that to our listening audience as well. I, I could have an inadvertent co-host today. Uh, we are fostering an elderly cat for friends of ours who are traveling. And so at the home studio today, if she decides to pop in in the background, just, just pay her no mind. We have been warned. <laughs> That's very nice of you, Mitch. Well, you know, today we take on a topic that we did discuss once before. It seems like years ago, um, the topic is going to be human trafficking. And I think in a past show, Mitch, we did have a guest from the San Francisco DA's office, and we talked about human trafficking, uh, and most of our focus there was in big city scenarios, but today we have an opportunity to expand the topic and talk a little bit about local laws, and um, in an effort to expand and to broaden our topic, we're really lucky today to have Assemblymember Jordan Cunningham as our guest. He serves the 35th Assembly District, which encompasses all of San Luis Obispo County and parts of uh, Santa Barbara County. I'll let Jordan talk about the jurisdiction, but I think he's got Santa Maria also. Uh, so it really will provide us an opportunity to talk about some legislative actions, proposed legislation that is all aimed at combating what is known as human trafficking. Well, Stephen, I'm glad you brought this topic up. And Jordan, welcome to the show. We're, we're glad to have you. Uh, as, as in many of our topics, as I mentioned to you just as we started the show today, you were aware of it, but I don't think we really understand it. So I really appreciate you coming on board today to, to help us understand not only the, the nature and the scope of the issue, but what we're doing about it here on the Central Coast and worldwide. So Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mitch, and thank you, Stephen. It's great to be on. So Jordan, let's start with uh, the the real 
need to, to place better focus on human trafficking. And I think we can probably start with a definition that will help maybe myth bust in many ways. Um, what we're really talking about here is modern day slavery. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's been called that, and it's also been called an epidemic, and I think both terms are, are accurate. Uh, if you look at the more legal definitions, essentially it's transporting uh, uh, human beings, a quarter of the victims, that it's estimated, a full quarter are children uh, for largely uh, sex acts and prostitution. So it's many times we, again, have heard things such as prostitution talked about victimless crimes, but when you put it in the context there with a quarter of these victims being children, it's far from being a victimless crime, isn't it? Well, that's right. And, you know, this industry is growing enormously. Worldwide, it's estimated to be a $150 billion industry, $150 billion. Uh, it's estimated that there are nearly 21 million victims worldwide. And what we're seeing in California, which is why I'm proud to be working on this in the legislature in a bipartisan way, is we're trying to get out in front of it in many ways. Because California, with, of course, the Los Angeles and Long Beach ports, um, with the Bay Area, I mean, you see victims coming in from Asia and other parts of the world, uh, traffic through the big cities, and then they're actually being transported up and down the Highway 101 corridor. And the area I represent in the legislature on the Central Coast is, is bisected by Highway 101. So we're actually seeing uh, pretty tremendous growth in, in human trafficking transport uh, through our area. You know, Jordan, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, and focus uh, on geography a little bit. In the past, we've talked about human trafficking, and our focus has been on the international aspect because the first time we took the topic on, we were talking about a big city, and that would be San Francisco. But uh, the reality is that human trafficking happens uh, on a local front, too, in counties, cities. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to cross an international border, right? Well, that's right. I mean, you see... Yeah, obviously they come in the border at some point, but you know once they're inside the United States, and in particular in California, it can be really difficult to track and combat it, which is why we're trying to do some things uh, creatively in terms of vertical prosecution grants, for example, to uh, rural counties that are, are transport hubs, you know, places where these poor victims are being trafficked by their uh, essentially by their pimps, and uh, they're being brought back and forth between the major metro areas. And if we can kind of head them off at the pass, so to speak, in you know on a along a transport corridor, uh, we you know we can intercept them. So let's talk a little about the laws that are involved. Uh, we we conceptually get that this is a you know a horrific problem, particularly when you focus on the on the children part, but really for anybody that's been in, enslaved in this. So what what can we do in California? What what laws are on the books? What what laws are you looking at changing? Give us a little bit of the framework of the, the legal response. So Mitch, there's a definition of human trafficking and and what we're really trying to go after and what most I think prosecution and law enforcement activities directed at is is the, the folks that are doing the actual trafficking, not, not, not the victims, not the people who are, uh, and, you know, largely children, 
are being used for totally illicit and illegal things. But the the folks that are bringing them into the country and that are transporting them and that are you know setting up meetings and those sorts of things. Um, and we've got a number of laws that, uh, and you know, some of us think are are maybe a little bit inadequate in some ways. I mean, for example, not not every uh, not every human trafficker has to register as a sex offender, uh, which I think should be changed. Uh, in some ways, there are certain types of human trafficking convictions that are not classified as. Uh, serious and violent crimes, so they have to do 85% of their sentence in, in a prison, as opposed to a local county jail. I'd like to see that changed. Uh, and a lot of what we're trying to do legislatively this year, there was a bill that I worked on and co-authored that would require hotels, motels, and bed and breakfasts uh, to post the, the national hotline number, because the hardest thing we have, uh, well, one of the hardest things and sort of from a law enforcement perspective, is having this crime reported in the first place. Because if you can get in there and have a hotline number that's up on the wall in a, in a motel or a hotel, and the hotel worker sees something going on with, you know, kids being taken up to a room, they're not really sure why, it doesn't seem to be their parent, that sort of thing, uh, they've got somebody to call. And, and, you know, what doesn't get reported obviously doesn't get uh, doesn't get caught. So I have two former district attorneys on the line here. Uh, let's just talk about the prosecution. Are these hard cases to make? Uh, obviously, you you need the reporting, uh, but then then you need to make the case. And I, it would seem to be these would be a classic case where you know getting victim statements, getting victims who are going to be available uh, to testify, all the way through the process of prosecution i mean there must be a whole chain of activities from all the way from the police all the way through prosecution in the sense of almost a task force that has to give support to these uh, prosecutions for this to have any chance at all yeah you know mitch let me respond to that and i think uh it can segue back into a, a issue that jordan raised relative to collaborative efforts and the need to communicate and reach out to what I think are typically known as non-government organizations. You know, Jordan's reference to posting notices at hotels to place vendors and business owners on notice, I think, is a really big issue. And that actually is one of the things that poses problems in presenting these cases, whether it's to jury or presenting them at preliminary hearing. The, the victim cooperation issue is a challenge because they have been um, indoctrinated and coerced as a result of uh, a lot of the the uh, activities and the conduct uh, of the bad actors. So it's very difficult to get victims to cooperate in many ways. Uh, so that does pose proof problems. But I think Jordan's point about the collaborative efforts and really spreading the news and awareness uh, from from real really street to courtroom is a major piece. Yeah, Stephen, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's sort of a, a there are at least two issues, and one of them is spreading awareness, getting more reporting. Uh, the hotline has been great. It's been in place since 2007, and I think the numbers we pulled suggest there have been 
19,000 calls and 5,000 cases that have led to 5,000 cases uh, just in the, in the national hotline since 2007. But the numbers are growing, and that's, that's actually paradoxically a good thing because it means it's, uh, we know this crime uh, and this activity is, is vastly underreported. So, you know, we want to see growth in the use of the hotline. We want to see that notice posted everywhere, and then that gives you a, a clean witness. It's maybe somebody staying at the hotel. It's maybe a hotel worker. It's, you know, and some some of this is trying to train people to how to that that work in those those types of establishments. Uh, what they need to be looking for, how they recognize the signs of, of human trafficking, um, and then when we get to the courtroom. I'm really big on the vertical prosecution grant concept uh, as a former prosecutor in a more rural county, San Luis Obispo. You know, we, there are a thousand DAs. I think there are literally a thousand deputy DAs in Los Angeles County. Uh, the county I was a prosecutor in, is, uh, there were 30. So a vertical prosecution team allows a DA to be embedded with a law enforcement task force and be involved in the case from the very inception and in the investigation stage all the way through filing the criminal charges, through preliminary, preliminary hearing, through ultimately a jury trial if necessary. And it can be a tremendous advantage. We've used that concept to attack gang activity. Uh, it used to be used for you know, anti-narcotics. Uh, it's a very successful concept. And so we're trying, on the state level, the legislature is trying to, to push some money into vertical prosecution grants for uh, counties like San Luis Obispo, where we're on a trafficking corridor on Highway 101. And how does the what does the grant support? Uh, just just to d- deep dive a little bit more in that. Uh, tell us how that works. How does that help the local prosecutors and local police enforcement? Yeah. So the it's. The bill that I was working on, I think the number was $2.6 million, which um, you know sounds like a lot of money to you and I, but in, in terms of the state budget in California, it's a, that's what uh, you know budget dust. But uh, it would essentially give a grant program that a, a county prosecution office could apply for, and if they were selected, it provides them funding for personnel. So they can either add a, a prosecutor, a deputy DA, uh, to have the vertical prosecution team, and, and that that prosecutor will be singly assigned to just doing those types of cases. Or it allows them funding to take somebody off of other casework and sort of backfill. So it's, it's sort of a state you know, grant program that gives you an extra body that you can then uh, get, get trained up in the specific nuances of this area of law and, and these type of human trafficking cases. And Jordan, you had mentioned the bipartisan uh, treatment of this kind of legislation. I think we are coming up on our first break here pretty soon, but I think it would be interesting to talk about just uh, what the collective wisdom is in terms of the need for vertical prosecutions and I think collaborative efforts. It's not the first time we've taken topics like this on, and I think it's indeed a very laudable goal, and I think we should return to that. Um, after the break and maybe move into a little bit more of uh, the the players, you know, the victim pool and things like that. And I think it would help our listeners to know uh, so as to really get the, the word out there and the notice out there a little bit. 
So we are going out on a break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Our guest today is Assemblymember Jordan Cunningham. He serves the 35th Assembly District in San Luis Obispo County. When we return, we will continue our discussion of human trafficking. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, our guest today is Jordan Cunningham. He is the assembly member who represents the 35th Assembly District, and that's San Luis Obispo County. And our topic is human trafficking. Um, it is a unsavory topic, but certainly one that needs to be discussed. And we are trying to put focus and awareness on this crime. And what I wanted to do, Jordan and Mitch, is 
really just to uh, introduce the idea of the, this notion that although international trafficking gets a lot of attention, human trafficking does not necessarily involve crossing borders. It can happen in a city, a state, a county, as we referenced in the beginning. And Jordan, you had mentioned that we are in a corridor here in San Luis Obispo County, and I think that's a significant factor. And you have been working to get awareness uh, through legislative uh, actions on this important topic. And let's pick up on collaborative efforts and vertical prosecution and a little bit about uh, really who these players are. Yeah, so, you, you, you know, you've got... The story I tell is the what really kind of tuned me in to the to the depth and breadth of this of this problem. Uh, you know, I was talking to somebody that is just a friend who happens to work in a, uh, a a really nice hotel here in Paso Robles, California, which I won't I won't name um, <laughs> for reasons that will become obvious. Uh, but you know, an upscale hotel place that's very popular with uh, you know tourists from the Bay Area and such, and. Uh, you know, she was telling me about uh, she saw people coming into the hotel. It was, an, uh, you know, a middle-aged guy, um, you know, teenage-looking, uh, you know, a couple teenage girls, and a bunch of video recording equipment. And she thought that was really odd and out of place, and uh, you know, but didn't know didn't know what to do with that information. Didn't know who to call. Didn't know, uh, you know, whether that should be reported or something like that. I think people are hesitant, and perhaps rightfully so, to call 911 if they see things that could be innocuous but look really out of place. But those same people would call a national hotline because it's a, it's a tip line. You know, you're not you're not necessarily even having to leave your name, and you know, you're not really calling for some sort of emergency law enforcement response. You're giving a tip, and then they can do with it. You know, they push it down to the local channels and investigate if, if necessary. So, you know, I think the, those are the sorts of things. And, and one thing that when I started really studying the human trafficking uh, public policy problem uh, is that, that really punched me in the gut, metaphorically speaking, is how many children are involved. These are runaways from other countries, largely. They get scooped up and they get transported. There's gang activity. There's gangs bringing these kids and teenagers uh, are still legally kids, you know, into, into our country. And then, I mean, this is going on all over the place. And it's not, it's not seedy hotels from, you know, from a bad Hollywood movie, right? I mean, this is happening in nice establishments. And a lot of the, the you know, what we call the Johns, the people that are paying for, uh, you know, illegal acts with kids uh, are, are, are wealthy people. It, it's actually kind of amazing. And, you know, we're looking legislatively at maybe is there a civil component we can use with it, an enormous fine, like a $50,000 fine per act um, with a lower burden of proof than criminal? And can we use that as a vehicle to fund enforcement efforts and to deter people? Uh, because a lot of the, the ultimate, uh, if, if you will, consumers of uh, these these poor traffic kids are are people with a, a, a high amount of disposable income. 
So we've mentioned it a couple times. Let me let me put out there the the national hotline number because I think that helps anybody who's listening and pass this on. It's one eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight. That's one eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight. And as Jordan has pointed out, this is a tip line. It's a hotline. It's somewhere with you're a victim former victim, you can reach out for help. If you actually go online to the humantraffickinghotline.org, you can actually file an anonymous complaint in a form right there. So you've got a number of of opportunities. And I know that the polarisproject.org also has a text line that they uh, indicate has been very successful in being able to let folks reach out because some of these folks have phones. Have you know they're they're young, as you said, they've got phones, they're used to texting, and they can text to connect with one of these hotlines or aid agencies. Yeah, that's a great point, Mitch. And I, I think uh, you know, Jordan, I appreciate your referencing the idea of see something, say something. We've heard that over and over again. And I I'm really glad that you made that point. Uh, Back to the, the legislature, can, can you share a little bit about the, the bipartisan aspect here? Because when I think of human trafficking and your efforts to bring attention to the need for things like vertical prosecution and collaborative efforts, I have to believe that there's close to 100% buy-in in terms of a need. Would I be right? Oh, absolutely. And, I, yeah, we are in very, very... As, as I say often, uh, yeah, as, a, as a recently elected office holder, I'm learning this anew every day and oh, pretty much every day. But, I mean, we are in very, very polarized political times. Uh, this cause, the fight against the growth of human trafficking, you know, the epidemic, the scourge, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most bipartisan cause I can think of. Uh, and, and we're seeing these bills... Uh, that are passing, they were passing them out of the assembly with near unanimous votes. So, you know, I think there's a lot of good bipartisan work to be done. And in it, because this, this problem involves so many different facets, right? I mean, there's the law enforcement piece and giving resources for things like vertical prosecution. Um, and, you know, the, the re- Republican side of the aisle tends to be more, you know, sort of pro law enforcement, if you will. But, you know, there's a human compassion component and funding victim services for people that, you know, get caught up in this and then need some help to reestablish some semblance of a normal life afterwards. Um, You know, and Democrats maybe tend to, they gravitate towards that a little bit more. But, I mean, so there's, there's all sorts of different facets of this problem. And I think people, regardless of political persuasion, I've been pushing awareness and, and legislatively and otherwise of, human trafficking efforts or anti-human trafficking efforts for a, a number of months on social media and, and elsewhere. And, you know, I've, I've yet to really hear anybody say, what the heck are you doing? You know, why, why are you spending time on that? And, and that's actually kind of rare in, in politics now. So I may be naive on this, but Jordan, it seems to me that as we think back on the war on drugs, that one of the most effective tools 
was when the government agencies were allowed to seize assets in a huge way, you know, planes, boats, houses, um, even commercial establishments, if they were found to be complicit in the illegal trafficking of drugs. Is there a corollary for human trafficking, or is that part of the criminal and civil revision of the laws that you think we need to be looking at? I think we need to look at that. I think that the trouble, you know, when you have someone moving large amounts of drugs and they're getting large amounts of money and cash for it, they tend to, they tended or tend historically to put that into boats and cars and safes. And, you know, so there are things that are kind of in one location that can kind of be seized, right? Um, I think human trafficking, because it's a little bit more mobile, uh, it's, it's maybe a little harder to do that, and the money's kind of flowing often uh, inter- internationally. And but I think there's I think there's a component of that, especially when you've got uh, the trafficking as part of a overall criminal enterprise, you know, run by a gang. Uh, there's there's certainly laws I think that that can play a forfeiture role and be helpful. And I think too what you you need to look at both you know, supply side and demand side, right? I mean, on the demand side, uh, this this idea that you can whack somebody who's a consumer of, a, you know, a, a trafficked victim um, and paying for an illegal act with that person uh, with a huge fine, I mean, that's got, that's got a certain amount of deterrence value on the, on the demand side of the equation. But I think that's something we should look at, too, and maybe forfeiture can come into play there as well. You know, uh, that's what I can offer is that uh, there are civil code sections that allow for damages uh, for victims of human trafficking. And your point um, in terms of, it, it made me think of asset forfeiture, which is one of the major tools that prosecutors can use in an effort to uh, capture the, what I'll call the ill-gotten gains uh, that are the result of criminal enterprises. Uh, I think that's a big component, and, and Mitch, you raise a, a really good point in terms of perhaps sending a message out uh, that it would be uh, also that the bad actors or, or the, the suspects or defendants would would face uh, losing uh, financial, uh, you know, loot, so to speak, Right. Yeah, and, and the other thing I wonder, Jordan, you talk about the vertical prosecution, and, and I, I think that's a, an important factor for all of us to be aware of. Uh, what about the the relationship between federal and state? I know both you and Stephen are, are state district attorneys. You're dealing with local law enforcement. But you did mention that, that borders come into play, ports come into play, and it just it strikes me to, that particularly when you say, you know, there's only so much one can fund at the state level. Is is this a dialogue that we need to have more at the federal level to parallel what you're doing here at the state level? I, I would say I, yes. I would, and, the, the you know, obviously the, the feds have jurisdiction over anything that crosses state lines. And, uh, you know, even if somebody I think was you know, found entire to be transported entirely within a state if they crossed an international border to get in that state, as almost every trafficking victim in California at least does. Um, that probably give federal jurisdiction. I mean, from my experience as a state prosecutor, 
I did work once upon a time in the Department of Justice, but uh, not in a criminal capacity. But, uh, you know, the, something has to get to a certain sort of size bef- before federal resources kind of come into play. Uh, you know, the, 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 the feds are very, very busy with international drug cartels, for example, but they're not going to concern themselves with your sort of local uh, you know, drug dealer on the street corner. That they're going to leave that to the state. But I think there needs to be collaboration because this this is truly kind of an international phenomenon, and we we can we can direct resources at the state level to it. But uh, especially where it's done through a network that kind of crosses continents, uh, that that's going to be primarily a federal issue. And Stephen, it made me think of the work you did when you were part of. You know, a statewide task force on on DUI prosecution, and I know it's it's somewhat of a leap, but but it struck me that 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 type of a focus of the effort uh, makes it brings not only prosecution but awareness, doesn't it? Oh, oh, absolutely, Mitch, and I think that's a really good point. And and you know what I was about to do is I was going to share that some of the larger counties, and I'm speaking now about Orange County and Santa Clara County, uh, San Jose being the county seat of Santa Clara County. Uh, I, I just wanted to share some of the, the definitions of the collaborative efforts. In San Francisco, uh, they are committed to ending human trafficking through what they say is collaboration, education, outreach, advocacy, and supporting survivors of human trafficking by taking a zero-tolerance stance. So I've just really read part of their creed or, or their mantra there. But in doing so, I, I think it's patently obvious that there is a commitment to collaboration and really reaching out. So yes, Mitch, uh, it is an apt comparison. Uh, when I served in uh, the special prosecution unit focusing on impaired driving and death-related crashes, it's the same thing. It's paying the knowledge forward. And I think we can expand on that topic when we come back from this next break, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Our guest today is Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham. He represents the 35th Assembly District in San Luis Obispo County. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. 
The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've been talking about human trafficking, and our guest today is Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham. He serves the 35th Assembly District in San Luis Obispo County, and we have been talking about some of the legislative efforts to bring awareness and more collaborative efforts uh, to the crime of human trafficking. And Mitch, you wanted to introduce a couple different topics relative to uh, I guess you wanted to talk more a little bit about the obstacles and what we can do. Yeah, I've listened to Jordan talk about this this challenge, and I'm, I laud him for the work he and our other legislators are doing in California. Uh, what I, I wonder about is something you mentioned right at the beginning of the show, Stephen, that, that it's so difficult to engage with the victims. First of all, they've got to you know, reach out for help. Second of all, they're going to have to be a witness, most likely, in a, a successful prosecution. Uh, Jordan mentioned that some number of these, we probably don't even know, are going to be non-citizens. They've literally been trafficked across the border into the United States. And and I wonder if, if part of the barrier to understanding this challenge is, is the, the alignment between law enforcement, in this case, and uh, fear of immigration services. I mean, that's certainly part of the national dialogue, and, and that's not the conversation today. But I just wonder if that becomes part of what we, as the general public, as the citizens, need to think about, that they're just afraid that if they reach out for help, it's not the prosecution piece they're looking for help on. It's what happens to them from an immigrant status. You know, yeah, Mitch, I, sorry, Jordan, What I, I just wanted to say, I think Mitch is obviously identifying an obstacle and one of the vulnerability factors here, because I think the reality is that those 
that are engaged in human trafficking or procuring people to serve in uh, acts of, of uh, prostitution are, are intentionally going after vulnerable victims, and that pool may well include undocumented uh, individuals. Yeah, and I think that's where there's two important aspects of that. I mean, you know, that's where the vertical prosecution concept is, is very, very important because you've got a, a law enforcement personnel working hand-in-glove with a prosecutor that then has the, the chance over a longer period of time to develop a relationship with the victim or victims, you know, plural. And, and there can be some trust established there and then, you know, there are things like asylum laws that, uh, you know, come into play. I, I think most human trafficking victims that are non-citizens, and I'm talking about the victims here, uh, w- would readily qualify for, for asylum status under immigration law. But they may not know that. And so, I mean, Mitch raises a really good issue. And, I mean, that's something that I think, particularly in the current climate, with uh, a lot of, shall we say, changes going on on the federal level in terms of enforcement, um, you know, that's something we probably need to spend some time thinking about. How do we tell these victims that, you know, if you do come forward or if you agree to cooperate and explain to, to a jury if necessary, which is a courageous, difficult thing to do, uh, explain how you've been abused by somebody and used for, uh, as, as you know, used as, in commerce illegally, uh, you know, how are we going to protect those people? And there, there are a lot of victims fund resources for them. I think, I think that's an important thing to note, to note as well. I mean, there, there's, there's a victim's compensation fund and, and people that are cooperative uh, with law enforcement, uh, can, you know, they can get relocation costs. They can get counseling. I mean, they can get certain things. I mean, I, and I think asylum laws are probably important as well. Yeah, like uh, I want to just kind of link this back to what you've talked about successfully doing on the state level with the bipartisan nature of this and, and without trying to trip over the partisan line here. I mean, I just think this is a such a shout out for bipartisanship, for the parallel efforts on the national level on this this discussion of the broad discussion of, of immigration reform. Be- because unless you have open bipartisan dialogue of how we're going to deal with the issue of undocumented individuals. These are some of the the costs that both sides are causing because you now have a fearful populace who's afraid of the government and that's going to include vertical prosecution participants up and down the line as well as state and federal. I mean, they're there's the fear-mongering going on, which I lay to the, le- to the left in the sense of the stories we see here in California of the same victims you're talking about showing up at court and getting arrested by ICE because they know they're on the docket as a, as a witness. A few stories, probably overblown, probably not true. But again, I go back to this is what happens if there's not a bipartisan dialogue at the federal level, because that's a federal issue, that you know you're successfully having at the state level. So I, mean, I just think that's it's a reminder to all of us that this idea you've brought forth, Jordan, that bipartisanship is the answer. It is the answer on issues like this. 
You know, you know, the other thing that I wanted to bring back into the discussion, Mitch and Jordan, is uh, a return to the collaborative efforts and what Jordan referenced earlier about law enforcement training. There was a discussion of vertical prosecution, but I think it's important to note that the first responders and the first contact is typically law enforcement and a victim or a suspect. And because this is a nuanced area and a challenging area to investigate, I think, uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Jordan, the importance of training law enforcement, because I think they're obviously stakeholders as part of the overall collaborative mission in uh, disciplines on the aspects of actually investigating these kind of cases. Yeah, Stephen, I think they're, we're doing some good things, and we're trying to do it on a local level, but also, you know, there's there are more and more resources going kind of different places statewide. There's nine regional, uh, we've divided the state essentially into nine different regions for anti-human trafficking efforts. Uh, there's there are frequent trainings uh, in terms of both for law enforcement to participate in and uh, other policymakers. Uh, I, ta- I was talking to a county supervisor friend from Yolo County, and he had just gone to a training, uh, and and it blew his mind how the the scale of this of this issue, and it was it, it was interesting to talk to him afterwards because I I'm not going to say that it's it's happy feel good stuff because it really it really isn't i mean especially when you you start looking at how young some of these victims are it's 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 really horrifying uh we're doing locally a forum if i can take a second to plug plug our deal uh, on august 14th in san Luis obispo at grace central coast on 1350 oso street uh, from 6 to 7 p.m so that's next monday august 14th uh, and it's a my office in collaboration with the San Luis Obispo County Human Trafficking Task Force are doing an awareness forum. So there will be me, the sheriff, the district attorney, and some other folks uh, just basically given an opportunity for the public to come learn about this issue, learn how they can help, uh, learn where they can get additional training uh, to, to recognize and report. Yeah, that's great, Jordan. And I think you you'd referenced the local task force uh, so it will be uh, an opportunity for certainly San Luis Obispo County residents to hear firsthand what's going on right here. So that's great, and I appreciate your sharing that. That's 6 to 7 p.m.? 6 to 7 p.m., Monday, August 14. So, Stephen, let me just plug again the couple of contact numbers for those who want more information. Uh, remember that the national hotline is one 888 373-7888. That's the national hotline for human trafficking to, to get help. 1-888-373-7888. And we mentioned the Be Free text line. And let me give the information on that as well, which is anyone who wants to get help for victims or survivors of human trafficking or to connect with their local services, they can text HELP. H-E-L-P, to 233-733. That's actually the, the numbers that spell out be free, but that's 233-733. All you have to do is text the word 
help to that. And you can link to both services and advice on accessing local resources, both both uh, enforcement as well as uh, community services. And Mitch, the other thing I wanted to share with our listeners, although we don't get into the detailed elements of statutes necessarily, but in this case, I do want to share California Penal Code Section 236.1, which uh, can be accessed easily online. That is the main code section. Uh, It has been updated since January 1st of 2017, and that is the code section that sets out human trafficking and describes it along with the sentencing structure for the crime, too. So I wanted to share that with our listeners also. Well, we always try to have a call to action on this, and I I would say that one of the call to actions for those of us who may be focusing on this issue for the first time is is a reminder of what what Jordan's doing in our state assembly here in California. uh, These issues are countrywide. They're in every one of the jurisdictions that our show is heard. And so it's a reminder that you should engage with your local assemblymen, senators, and ask them about what's being done in in your state, in your region, uh, to talk about in some in some of these areas, your district attorneys are elected individuals. What are they doing to put this as a priority to engage in the type of vertical prosecution that Jordan's talking about? So it's not just sitting on our hands and waiting for somebody to fix this for us. Uh, we all have a role to play in, in supporting the electeds on getting legislation through, on toughening the laws, on supporting the prosecution efforts. It's a, it's a role we should all play. Absolutely, Mitch. And Jordan, let me give you an opportunity as we close right now to just let our listeners know how they can reach out to your office and what they can expect next Monday the 14th. So next Monday the 14th, we're having our awareness forum. If you happen to be in San Luis Obispo County, uh, come on down to Grace Central Coast. Uh, it's 1350 Oso Street from 6 to 7 p.m. Um, I won't be the most knowledgeable person in the room on this by any means. We're going to have our local sheriff, our our local district attorney, um, and some people with real expertise in the human trafficking awareness. And what we're really trying to to get at is give the public a chance to to see, you know, what the signs are, how to recognize it, what they can do to help join the fight in combating it. Um, And I think it's going to be very, very informative. And I would encourage listeners to, you know, look up, as Mitch said, you know, to contact your local representative, uh, you know, on the state level or wherever else, and and ask them, you know, how can I how can I get involved? How can I learn more about this? And how can I help you out? I mean, this is a crime that it affects children uh, disproportionately, and and sometimes very young children. Uh, these victims, it's really heartbreaking stuff. I mean, they're, they've been brainwashed. They don't trust law enforcement. Uh, getting some some trust and cooperation and is is critical, and then getting buy-in from the business community and particularly the hospitality industry. Um, and and I will say to their credit, you know they're required under California law to post all sorts of notices and things on their walls relating to labor law and all sorts of things. Um, but they they did not really oppose you know, having the national hotline be something they're required to post. And, 
So I, well, I think we're seeing Jordan, a really positive on that, movement. On that note, we're coming yeah. to the end of this. The show. end, I know. There's so much more we can talk about. But thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Jordan. Jordan Cunningham, Assemblyman for the 35th Assembly District in California. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can hear an archive of today's program on voiceamerica.com business, uh, business channel. As we mentioned to you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.